0: I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1 in your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 1 as we continue our study of the book of Hebrews this Lord's Day. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew rack there in front of you. Uh, And you can grab that, go towards the end of the New Testament where we come to the book of Hebrews. Uh, Last Lord's Day we started our study of Hebrews by looking at just the first few verses in chapter 1. And uh, what's very clear at the very beginning of this book is that God has revealed Himself to us through His Word. He's done that since the beginning of creation. He has done that to us through His Word. And we find in His Word that His final revelation to us is His Son, Jesus Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews is making it very clear uh, that Christ reigns supreme. And I think this is a much needed reminder for us in the church today, especially in our culture today, because... We have a tendency as sinful people to have a lower view of God than we should and to have a higher view of ourselves than we should. But what we see in the Scripture, what we're reminded of, is this high view of God that we're called to have and the the supremacy of Christ that we see throughout the Word and especially throughout this first chapter. And so uh, we're going to look at verses 4-14 through this morning, but just to put that in context, I'm going to go ahead and read all of chapter 1 for us. So, out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand, as I read God's holy, inspired, revealed Word to us. And this is what God says. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son He makes the angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands; they will perish, but you remain. And they will wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, "Sit at the right hand, at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool"? For your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? If you would pray with me. Father God, we thank you for the revelation of your word. We need not wander or wonder in regards to who you are and what you've called us to. It is very clear as we read it, as we understand it, and what is very clear in this passage is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And yet, Lord, we may be tempted today to have a very low view of Jesus. We may be tempted in this time, perhaps already, to have our minds wander off to so many other things. We may be tempted to not even listen to Your Word proclaimed. Lord, I pray that You would do a work through the power of Your Holy Spirit that we might not only hear this Word, but that we would respond to it through repentance and faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, again, to our mothers today, happy Mother's Day. You know, Mother's Day has been around in some shape or form for a very long time. In fact, in ancient Greece, there was an annual festival around springtime of which they would honor one's mothers. We see something like that happen throughout time. In fact, in the the Middle Ages, there was a custom called Mothering Sunday. And during that time, while many young people had gone off to to work and to learn different uh, jobs and and trades, they would come home on the fourth Sunday of Lent. And during this time, uh, they would bring their their mother some type of gift, some type of candy, uh, something to let her know how much they appreciated her appreciated her. Uh, this custom's been handed down. In fact, in the late 1800s, it was Julia Ward Howe, the author of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, who first suggested that uh, we here in the United States have a, a Mother's Day that was recognized. It would be decades later when Mother's Day would become an official U.S. holiday, but it rightly should be. We, we should honor our mothers. Uh, moms, you have a tremendous amount on your shoulders. You you are expected to know virtually everything. Uh, I found this to be true very quickly in our house. Uh, our firstborn, Parker, when, when he was a, a baby, his very first words, I was so proud of them. his very first words were, Dada. And I remember just being so proud that that's the first thing he said. And I was telling everybody that's the first thing he said. And then I remember a friend said very graciously to me, well, maybe he said dad at first, but once he learns to say mama, that's all he's ever going to say. And how true that was and is. In fact, yesterday as I was sitting in our house just looking over my sermon notes for today, I counted no less than 20 times I heard my children still saying, mom, 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 mom. Uh, mom's expected to know where everything is, what everything is, and what the weather is, everything. Mom's supposed to know it all. And yet, moms don't know everything. Where does mom go to, to find information? Where does she go to find all these things? Who does she ask questions to? Well, I hope for you who are gathered here today as mothers, I hope for all of us as we're gathered here today, that the foundation of where we ultimately go with our questions is to the Word of God. And the greatest gift a mother can give her children is to raise them and the admonition and the encouragement of the Word, because it is the Word that points us not just towards the instruction of our mothers and fathers, but ultimately points us to the instruction of God our Father and His revelation through Christ His Son and the power of, indwe- of the indwelling Spirit of God in which the Holy Spirit indwells believers. And so that's where we want to turn today as we consider and continue to consider Hebrews chapter 1. This, this revelation regarding who Christ is. Now you probably recognized as I was reading through this text that the writer of Hebrews here has a lot to say about angels. Now there's this comparison that he continually makes, spends most of this chapter on, and comparing Jesus to the angels. And at first glance, people might think, well, perhaps there was a struggle there among the Hebrews, perhaps they were elevating angels or worshiping angels. And while I think that may very be true in our day, that that wasn't really the case here. Now, what I think we find here is that the writer of Hebrews is countering a false teaching uh, that had risen up within the Jewish community. Uh, Specifically, during that time between the closing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there was a sect of Judaism known as the Essenes. And the Essenes had this right understanding of the Scripture where they believed rightly that the Old Testament pointed towards the coming of the Messiah, but they had a wrong interpretation of what that Messiah would look like. And so as we discussed last week, we see here the writer of Hebrews telling us that Jesus is the perfect prophet, priest, and king while those were three separate offices in of the old testament no one person could have them all all of them we find them in jesus but this was something that this jewish sect failed to understand so they were looking for three different messiahs they were looking for a prophet who would be the fulfillment of the messianic promises they were also looking for a separate priestly king or excuse me priestly messiah who would be in the line of aaron and a separate kingly Messiah who would be in the line of David. They thought there would be three messiahs that would reign over the people of Israel. Of course, the question then is, well, how can three people reign? Who's going to oversee these three? And that's where the angels came in. They believe that the archangel Michael would be the one who would reign over these three Messiah figures in restoring the nation of Israel. And understanding this teaching, now the writer of Hebrews is countering that by helping the people to see, no, Jesus is the true Messiah. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And as Messiah, He rules over the angels. And he's helping the people to understand a right view of Christ, a high view of Christ. Again, a view that we need to have of Jesus. And so I simply want to walk through this text this morning and point out five things that we see here about Jesus that help correct our understanding as it needs to be corrected about the supremacy of Christ. I'm beginning there with the first point in your notes. Jesus has a superior name. Jesus has a superior name. Jesus is higher than the angels because his name is higher. Verse 4, the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, than the angels. See, in the Jewish culture, a name meant a great deal about a person. And it's not that our names today don't have significance. I'm sure each of the children that were up here earlier, their names have significance. Oftentimes, our names have significance related to family members. It may be a family name. For others, our name has significance because there's some meaning to that name that we attribute to that child and to our family. For others, we might look to the Scripture and find biblical names, and that's a meaning behind a child's name. But for the Jewish people, that the name really represented the character of who that person was. And the writer of Hebrews here is making it clear that Jesus has a name that is above every name. And notice what that name is. It's the name Son. And that name is significant because Jesus has eternally been and will always be the Son of God. That is His name that He bears and He carries. And then the writer takes us back to the Old Testament to help us see why this is so significant. Notice there verse 5. He says, For which, to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And this is from the second psalm. This was believed to be a messianic psalm. The Jewish people would look to this psalm in anticipation of who the Messiah would be and rooted within that psalm was this statement. You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. And the writer of Hebrews says here that this is reserved for Christ. This is reserved for the Messiah. and None of the angels have ever been addressed this way. Think of how we see that psalm fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now we see the Father looking to the Son and affirming Him as Son and saying, You are My Son. We see it in the opening verses of Mark's Gospel at Jesus' baptism where we see God from heaven, God the Father, saying of His Son, You are My beloved Son and in You I am well pleased. That this prophecy from Psalm 2 is fulfilled in and through Christ. He is the eternal Son. His name is higher than any other. He goes on then to point out another Old Testament passage in reference to this, 2 Samuel 7.14. The writer says, or again, and he quotes 2 Samuel, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now this too was a well-known messianic passage. It was when the prophet Nathan told David that That there would be a son that would come after him who would reign forever. His kingdom would never end. Now if you know much about David and his descendants, you know Solomon would come, but Solomon's kingdom didn't endure. You know Solomon would have children, but their kingdom did not endure. And so it seems that these words weren't going to be fulfilled through the line of David until we get to the coming of Jesus. You may remember that announcement that's made to Mary by the angel Gabriel, when he tells her what was to come through Christ, he said, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Again, that name, the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom there will be no end. And so again, we see this picture of this, that this perfect King, the supreme king that would be Jesus. His name would be a superior name. He is eternally the Son of God. His name should be revered. And with that in mind, consider how we use the name of Jesus today. Consider how you often hear the name of Jesus. I'm not talking about when we're in here singing about him, I'm talking about when we're out there in the world. Talking about His name is thrown out as a curse or at best as common. We have taken the name of Jesus and we have minimized it so much in our common language that we have forgotten what the Word of God says about this name that is above every name. We have forgotten to revere the name of Jesus. Jesus. And if we're not careful, we have bought into what the world does with this name and we use it as a curse or we use it at best as common. the writer of Hebrews here reminds us we should not do these things. We should exalt the name of Jesus. We should remember that the day is coming when every person will exalt the name of Jesus. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore, God has highly exalted Him, exalted Jesus, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, this name of Son, so that at the name of Jesus, at the, name of it, at the mention of His name, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the reality is, there will be some, perhaps some of you, who will not bow their knee to Christ until that day. And in that day, it will be too late to be brought into His kingdom. You will be bowing to the One whose wrath is coming. You will be bowing to the One whose judgment is coming against you. And here we are given this moment of grace to understand Christ is supreme and His name is great and we can call out to Him and confess Him as Lord here and now today. He has the superior name. Point two, Jesus is worshipped by angels. Jesus is worshipped by angels. It it doesn't make any sense to say that that, that Jesus is below the angels because the Scriptures make it clear that He's actually worshipped by the angels. Verse six, the writer says, and again, when He brings the firstborn into the world, He says, let all God's angels worship Him. Now here he is quoting from the song of Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, again a passage that the Jews considered to be messianic, a passage that pointed towards the coming Messiah, a passage that reminded them that the angels would worship the coming king. Now how do we see this fulfilled? And consider that picture we have in Luke chapter 2, where the announcement is made to the shepherds in the field of the coming of Christ. And you have that angelic pronouncement. You have that heavenly host. And what are they doing? They are praising God and they are worshiping God. For what? For giving us the Messiah. That they are praising the name of Jesus. And not just there, we see at the tomb as the followers of Christ gather there, the angels pronounce to them that Christ is risen. We see the angels are worshiping Christ. They are praising Christ, they are lifting high the name of Christ. Not just there, we see in the end of the New Testament, the angels rejoicing at the ascension of Christ into heaven, but not just there. You go to the end of the Scripture in the book of Revelation, and we see the angels gathered around the throne of God, praising God, worshiping Christ for all eternity. The Scripture is clear that the angels worship Jesus. The question is, do you and I worship Jesus? When we throw around that word worship a lot, what does it mean? It means to revere, to adore, to lift high. To worship something is for it to occupy our thoughts and our minds. It's for us to be the focus of our gaze. To worship something is for our mind to just be captured by it. Does Jesus capture your mind and your thoughts? I mean, just be honest, and by all means, don't shout an answer out to this one, but what are you thinking about right now? now what are you thinking about more often than not? Well, what is it that, that occupies your mind? I'm not just talking about, well, I'm worried about this, I'm anxious about this. Well, what is the object of your affection? What, what is the driving force in your life? What do you get out of bed in the morning for? What's the last thing you think about when you go to sleep at night? Is it your job, your finances, your family, relationships? Well, what is it in your life that can so easily take the place of Jesus as the primary thing which you are worshiping and revering and adoring? The writer of Hebrews here reminds us that that is a place reserved for Christ and for Christ alone. If the angels worship Jesus, how much more should we worship Jesus this calls us to a deeper commitment friends when we gather each Lord's day that we don't just stand and read some words to a tune but we consider that which we are singing that that we don't just open up the scripture and run our eyes over top a few verses and check off the list for the day while I read my Bible today it means that we want to know who Christ is Is He the object of your affection? Are you worshiping Him? The angels do. We also see here point three. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is sovereign. He is higher than the angels because He is the sovereign. The angels are the servants. He is the sovereign. Verse 7, he quotes here from Psalm 104 and points out that the angels are ministers of God. They are to do God's bidding They are servants. And then he contrasts that with who Jesus is in verses 8 and 9. He quotes from Psalm 45. Here this psalm is about the sovereign glory of the Messiah. This passage gives a picture of Christ as King. Notice the references here. He talks about a throne that is forever. A scepter of rightness in which He rules through all eternity with righteousness. He is the King. And we live in a country where we don't have a king, we don't have a queen, we don't have a monarchy. Even when we mention a monarchy, probably the closest thing to that we consider is the United Kingdom, which has a constitutional monarchy. There's no real authority and power there. But just think about the picture we see there. Is it one of an enduring kingdom? No, there's constant change. Is it one of a a rule of righteousness? No, it's usually one filled with scandals and the subject of the cover of tabloids. And in fact, take your eyes off the UK. Just look around the world and what do you see among kings and kingdoms? You see people who are power hungry, who rule with an iron fist. You see kingdoms that are overthrown. You see kings who starve their people in order to fill their own bellies. And you see something very, very different than that. Here in this pronouncement of the sovereign King Jesus Christ. And a reminder here from the writer of Hebrews that as sovereign, as king, that that He's not there to do our bidding. We're here to do His bidding. It's not just the angels who are to serve Him. We are to serve Him as well. And that's a needed reminder because so often we we get that reversed. When we treat Jesus like He's a a genie in a bottle. (laughs) I got my three wishes. When we treat Jesus like He's the, the magic eight ball, well, I, I really need to know an answer, Jesus. to so Give me an answer here. When we treat Jesus like He's our servant to go out there and, and do our bidding and do things for us, when the Scripture reverses that and says, no, we're, we're here to serve Him. And what that practically means is we need to obey Him. It's not enough that we just listen to His words. We need to do what His words say. And yet, so often, the driving force in our life, even for us as believers, the driving force in our lives is our passions and our desires, and we don't want anybody telling us what to do. We don't want anyone ruling over us, especially some ancient text that many of us feel is outdated and not fitting for our day. We want to do what we want to do. And God's Word calls us in a very different direction. Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 6 where he says, you are not your own. (laughs) That is so contrary to the culture we live in. You are not your own. But you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The reference here, of course, in 1 Corinthians 6 is to sexual purity and what we do with our bodies. It extends then to really purity in general. It's a reminder to us that, that, that we belong to Christ. Friend, is that how you live your days? But before you watch something and put it in front of your eyes, do you consider I I belong to Jesus? Will this this please Christ what I'm about to watch? Before you say something out of your mouth the body God has given you that He owns, do you consider what I'm about to say? Will this bring glory to Christ? Before you do anything in those moments when you think nobody will ever find out, Do you consider the Word of God and the authority of it that says you are not your own, you were bought up with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Christ is not there to do your bidding, friend. We are here to do His. He is sovereign. Point four, Jesus is eternal and unchanging. Jesus is eternal and unchanging. Here the writer quotes from Psalm 102, which is the cry of a man who is afflicted and who is broken. And in the midst of his affliction, he cries out to God. And as he cries out to God, he is reminded of God's sovereignty and His goodness and His transcendence. And primarily he's reminded that He is eternal and He is unchanging. And the writer of Hebrews here, he attributes these attributes to Jesus. Jesus is the One who's eternal. Jesus is the One who's never changing. Jesus is the One who was there in the beginning from the foundation of the world. All things were created through Him. And Jesus is the One that will always be. And notice here, He makes this point about how Christ is unchanging. He gives the the description here from Psalm 102 of, of all of creation. And God says all of creation is like a garment that wears out. Think about that for a moment ask you a question and you can you can raise your hand on this one how many of you as the school year started you brought new clothes new shoes for your kids gosh y'all are terrible parents y'all are the first service was awful i thought y'all be better but you're just as worthless nobody buys their kids clothes when school starts okay well your pastor's a high roller so we go out and buy our kids New shoes and new clothes. Living high on the hog on Fairfield Hill. And so we're going out there. and Just a good time. You know, school starts, you go buy them some new shoes, buy them some new clothes. But as the year goes on, what happens? They wear out. I mean, I look at my kids' shoes after a month of school and I'm like, did you just hike across the Sahara or something? I mean, they're just worn out completely. They don't last. If you've got kids, you don't usually... Take those clothes out after they've worn them for a year and think, wow, it looks like they didn't wear them. No, they're just, they're worn out. Our garments, they wear. Our shoes, they wear. And God here says, just like garments wear out, everything that is created wears out. Now, we are called to be good stewards of creation and what God has given us, but we need to remember this, this earth, this world, it's wearing out. That this is not eternal. God says He'll create a new heaven and a new earth. Everything around us is always changing. You can't get comfortable with anything because something about something's going to change. Many of you lament change. You think about oh how things used to be. I wish they were like they used to be, but things aren't like they used to be because used to be means it's changed. Things are wearing out. Things are changing. But what does the Scripture say of? christ he never changes he, he doesn't wear out i mean think about what a glorious truth that is I, I love my children i want my children to come to me anytime with any problem but they know there's times they shouldn't come to me because i'm tired and i'm grumpy we get tired and we get worn out and our attitude changes. We'll talk about, well, oh, I'm sorry I acted that way. I was just tired. Or oh, you really caught me at a bad time. Because we're just up and down and up and down and up and down. But we're reminded here we can go to Christ with anything at any moment and His mood never changes. His attributes are always the same. He is a Messiah of Christ who is eternal and who is unchanging. Then the writer goes on to remind us that He rules the universe, Point five. Jesus rules the universe. He quotes here from Psalm 110. This is the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament because it tells us about where Christ went when He departed this earth into glory and what He is doing now. He gives us the image, the picture here that He is sitting at the right hand of the Father that His enemies are a footstool under His feet. We talked about this last Lord's Day. This picture we have of Christ as the perfect high priest. In the tabernacle, there was no place to sit. Why? There was nowhere for the priest to rest because the work was ongoing. It was continual. There was sacrifice after sacrifice. Year after year. But Jesus is our great high priest. He made a sacrifice once and for all. And then He sits down at the right hand of The Father, this is a position of supreme authority. Not only is His work finished, but He is sovereign and in control and He rules the universe. The picture here is He makes His enemies a footstool for His feet. Jesus literally has His foot on the ottoman of His enemies. Just propped Him up there. He crushes the enemy. He rules over the enemy. He has conquered every enemy. It's a reminder to us of the greatness of Christ and of who Jesus is. It's a reminder to us too then of in reference to Christ who the angels are. Verse 14, he says, now now that we understand all this about Jesus, let's remember angels have a purpose. What is it? Well, they're ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So there's this angelic realm that you and I, we can't see in this moment, but we see clearly in the Scripture. There's this angelic realm where they are ministering spirits, helping us in our sanctification even now. They are sent out by Christ to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. They don't exist for us to worship them or praise them. They exist for us to worship and praise Christ. He is superior and He is sovereign. There's a picture here that reminds us of the supremacy of Christ, of the glory of Christ, that calls us to look to that day when we will be in the presence of Christ. Today, again, is Mother's Day. is a day we celebrate, but for some it's not. For some you mourn and you grieve. Some of you lost your mothers this year. or In recent years, you wish you could have one more Mother's Day with her. Some of you are moms and you've experienced that the heartache of what can come with raising children and losing children. Watching your children suffer. Some of you long to be mothers. There, there, there's so many effects of the fall and of sin and of depravity on the family unit to where Mother's Day is not a celebration for all of us. But there's a reminder here in the Word that there is a day coming that will be a celebration for all of us. But there's no more grieving and there's no more suffering and there's no more longing for and there's no more regretting of and there's no more strained relationships and there's no more broken promises and there's no more what ifs. We're just in the presence of Christ, our King, and worshiping him in his glory forever. Do you long for that day? And friend, if you don't long for it, then that's an indicator that you don't truly know Christ. And You may consider yourself a Christian, maybe you're a member of this church or another church, but if you don't long to be in the presence of Jesus, then something's not right in your heart. And the only way that can be made right, the Scripture says, is you don't need like a heart adjustment. You actually need a new heart. And the Gospel promises this. God will take that old heart out of you. He'll give you a new heart of belief and repentance. And He'll give you that desire to long after Christ and to hope for Christ and look towards that day when there's no more suffering, no more pain, no more death. You are in His presence. When this is a day where we honor mothers, there are other days where we honor fathers, but we are reminded that there's a day when there's one who will have our attention it's christ in christ alone are you living for that day i'll leave you with the story of one who did read not long ago about a pastor in church history a scottish pastor named robert bruce he was a minister in scotland in the early 1600s this was a time when the king of scotland wanted to rule not just the land but the church and Bruce was one of many who refused to bow his knee to the king, and so he was imprisoned for preaching the gospel, and ultimately he was sentenced to death for preaching the gospel. On one morning in 1631, the day of his execution, he requested as his last meal for his daughter to come and to cook him an egg for breakfast. It was so good, he thought about asking for another. <laughs> But he would go on to say, no, that would be sufficient. He turned to his daughter and he said this, I have breakfasted with you this morning. I'll have supper with Jesus tonight. Friends, there's nothing greater to the long for and to look towards that day when we be with Christ for all eternity. But here's the reality you don't long for him now you're not going to long for him then if you don't long for him now that's an indication that you may not be as secure in your faith as you think you are when the call from scripture is to repent and to trust in him and we invite you to do that if you would stand together and pray with me Father, my words can change the heart of no one. But Your words can change anyone's heart. And so, Father, I pray that Your Word would do that very thing. That You would change hearts, Lord, for those who are hardened towards the Gospel today. I pray that You would call them to faith and repentance and trust. To others, Father, who perhaps have repented and trusted in You, but find themselves wandering away, not obedient to Your Word today, not not glorifying You with their bodies, with their thoughts, with their speech. I pray, Father, You would call them to repentance and empower them to repent through Your Holy Spirit. And for all of us, Lord, as we consider a response to Your Word today, I I pray our response would be one in which we would desire to, to glorify Christ and His kingdom. I pray, God, that You would put a longing in our heart for that day when we are there in a new heaven and a new earth where we are praising Christ for all eternity. And Lord, if there's any here who who just honestly doesn't long for that, doesn't desire that, Lord, would You help them to see that? That's an indication that they very well don't know You. And Lord, would You bring them to conviction and to faith. We, We ask that You would do this work now. In Christ's name. Amen.